comes from the Latin meaning a sort of collection of books or small library. It's lots of books all brought together. And as we all know, that every faith or religion has its own holy writings. But there is nothing anywhere that compares to the structure and the stories of the Bible. It is totally unique in the way that it's written, its content, the fact that it brings so many different messages, but brings one message. It's totally unique. I started reading the scriptures on my own, I guess I was about 13, 14, um, and I'm still studying them now. And I I would make the point now that I I learned then that uh, it is God's word. It's God's authoritative word. Um, But that's where I want to challenge you a little bit. My background, as most of you know, is science. I was initially trained in science, and as life's gone on, I've been privileged to move into other areas so that I've been able to study the scriptures both philosophically and theologically in in structured ways as time's gone on. But my initial background was science. The thing about science is that the harder you kick it, the more established the truth Scientists are not frightened of challenging truth because it does two things. Either it finds a new truth or it establishes the old truth. And I have the same approach to the Bible. I really don't mind approaching it from a liberal perspective or any other perspective because the more you challenge it, the stronger it stands. If somebody comes to me and starts telling me about some of Newton's laws of physics with some wacky, silly uh, experiment that's going to disprove them, well, we all fall around and laugh, don't we? Because we know that there are some immutable facts that aren't going to change. And however liberal you approach the word of God, there are some things that will not go away. It keeps coming back. It keeps standing up. And it keeps being established. And however hard you kick it, the stronger it stands. A couple of months ago, I was on a beach, well, end of last year actually, with um, two of my grandchildren, and they they were playing, digging, making sandcastles. And just at the top of the beach, there was two little uh, stones on on the sand. And I've forgotten which one, but one of them ran up and got a spade and dug up the little stone and put it on top of their sandcastle. The other one ran up to their little stone and started digging and digging and digging and the stone got bigger and bigger and bigger and it became apparent that the top of the stone may have been above the sand but the rest of it wasn't coming out for anything. And the more you dug, the bigger that rock got. That's my view of the Bible. It's not something you can pick up and move around and change and and turn it into what you want it to be. The more you read it, the stronger it gets, the bigger it gets, and it stands on its own grounds. So I want to um, share that with you, where I'm coming from, before we look at the few little thoughts I'm going to bring you this morning, because we're going to go somewhere slightly different. Uh, If you're an academic, you'd be pretty aware of where I'm going, but I, I guess many of you haven't heard sermons on what we're going to be looking at this morning. But it's really wonderful. I, I, I do it because it brings me such encouragement. Right, we've been looking at Psalms, yeah? 
And so John said to me, if he could do something on Psalms, so I thought, right, I'll do something on Psalms. So would you open your Bibles at the Psalms? And I'm going to ask you to, to read up things for me as, as you go through. Has anybody had a cheat and looked at the webpage and seen my notes on the webpage, which John insisted I put up? Okay, so we'll start with Jill. Um, Jill, can you read the first part of Psalm 1? Just the first line. Okay, now remember the Psalms is a, it's a collection of books put together quite deliberately in a certain order, and it comes in certain sections of books. It's not a random group. Um, somebody read me, the, read me the first line of Psalm 2. Okay, and uh, Manjit, would you read me the first part of Psalm 3 in your translation? Lord, how many? No. Sorry, didn't want that. Oh, the first part of Psalm 3. Who's got the first part of Psalm 3? And he shall be like a tree. No, forget that. That's not the first part of Psalm 3. Psalm of David. Uh, sorry? Oh, sorry? Three. Psalm 3. Uh, what? A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. How many of you have got the footnotes in your translations? They're not in every translation. And I don't think they're in Manjit's translation, because when I was sat at the back, I had a quick look down at which Bible she had and thought, right, I'm pretty sure it's not in that one, so if I ask her, it will work. <laughs> so, sorry for setting you up, Manjit, but there we are. Um, some translations put, the foot, put these notes in and some don't. Um, and there's quite a few of them. And if you read that, you, I'll leave you to, 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 to read down Psalm 3, 4, 5 and start looking at these notes. A lot of them just say, to the choir master. Some just say, a Psalm of David. Right, let's read Psalm 3. Um, okay, well, Manjit, we'll pick on you because I know the translation you've got there. Can you read Psalm 3, verses 1 and 2? Okay. Um, okay, Jill, would you read it? O oh Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me. Selah. Selah. It says Selah. Now, many translations leave that out. But it's there in the original. And you've got... In the Old Testament, not just the Psalms, these, these notes occur also in some of the minor prophets, Habakkuk particularly. But the, 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 it turns up there as well. Um, what does this mean? What we know is that Jesus used the Old Testament and he used the... Anyone tell me? He used the Septuagint, which was Greek. The translation from the Hebrew into Greek. That's the one that Jesus used. And these marks, these comments, are in the Septuagint. Way back in Jesus' time. We also know from the Midrashic commentaries of the time, at Jesus' time, they didn't know what they meant. <laughs> Way back in Jesus' time, they didn't know what these things meant. 
So somewhere between the writing of the Psalms and some of the minor prophets and Jesus' time, the actual meaning of Selah was lost. Why is it in the Bible? What does it mean? Now, there are other words that come up. Some of them are really interesting. Um, if, if, you, if you talk to the musicians, they will tell you, of course, that there is millions and millions of musical terms. Um, and they're all pretty important. And all music is structured. I, I did a course once, oh, years ago. Um, it was about a five-day course on free jazz which was literally totally free jazz. You just sat there and played anything. It sounded terrible. By the end of the week, we got to sound reasonable because we had to learn that even in totally free jazz, there are structures and there are things you can do and things you can't do. Um, and if we were to get the music group to come up and play to us one of the songs this morning and I went and whispered in the ear of one group, play in G. And I went to her and said, play an F. You guys would be going, oh, go away. Right? There are these structures in music. And when you read the start of these, the notes, the footnotes on these psalms, there's some wonderful phrases like miktam and gitath. And it says, um, to the choir master, a miktam of David. We don't know what it means. We have not got a clue what it means. Most scholars think that these phrases are applying to either musical terms or liturgical terms. But that's what they mean. It's some instruction. Some of them, there's one or two psalms um, that says, to the doe of the morning. It actually says, to the doe of the morning. And I suspect that's the name of a tune. Or maybe it's a system. If I said to... to, to um, these guys and the musicians, let, let's do um, one that you all know. Be Thou My Vision is a famous one. And um, they say, are we doing it in three beat or four beat? You know, musicians know what that means. Um, and sometimes if you, if you use phrases like certain, any musicians say different cadences, you're going to finish the two, five, one, you're going to finish on, the, on, 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 on a moderate seventh, what, how are you going to finish? You know, these phrases mean a lot to the musicians and it says to the choir master, do this to the Doe of the morning. Now, it could have been a tune, it could have been a system, it could have been a system of cadences, it could have been a scale, it could have been a pentatonic, it could have been, oh, goodness knows what. We haven't got a clue. We don't know. But there they are in the Bible. Yes. Yes, it actually says, in the Hebrew, I think, says, to the doe of the morning. Um, and there's one or two other ones, too, that, that, that bring this up. Um, but I love these phrases. And, and, and I, I, but what does it mean? Why are they there? Well, let's, get, let's read you one of the most famous verses of Scripture that we all know. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture. And if you Google, go home and try this, Google um, psalm headings or something, and you'll find all the academic discussions on whether this is scripture, whether it's not scripture, whether it's canalytical, whether it's, oh, just forget it. Um, it's in the Bible 
It's in the Bible at Jesus' time. It's scripture. It's there. So what do we learn from this? This is scattered throughout the Psalms. It really just When you see them, look at them and ask yourself, what's God telling me through this? Um, I think there are lots of things we, we, can, we can learn from this. I mean, firstly, the first thing to learn is God put it there. It's his Bible. I, I passionately believe in the authority of God's scripture. This is, this is what it is. It's there. Why has God put something in the scripture that is completely nonsensical? Now, it's quite possible that next week, next year, or 10 years' time, somebody will dig up something in the desert and find a whole key saying, oh, if you guys in 2,000 years' time or 4,000 years' time, here is the meaning, Mitra means this, it's happening, you know, it's happened before. But at the moment, we haven't got a clue. I mean, you can find people with different, different views. We don't know. Maybe that's the point. There are some things in the Bible that you don't know and that you can't know. And when I start to think about this, it brings to me a, a, an air of humility. God is saying in his word, he's demonstrated to me with an icon, the word Selah and Mitram and Gitath and other things. Here is something you can't know. It's in my word. Right. That tends to mean to imply that some of the theology, some of the things of God's word, I can't know. I don't know. And I have to approach God's word. It's not a code book to be interpreted. It's his word. And he's God. And you're not. And that means sometimes it needs some humility to say some things we can't understand. And if you take nothing else from this morning, take that. Some things we simply cannot understand. They're put in the scripture. God knows what they mean. And they couldn't be that complicated at the time. A mictram probably meant a pentatonic or something, or you know, a, a finish on a perfect cadence. I mean, pretty basic stuff, really. But we don't know. I have to accept that humbly. There's some things I can't understand. Now, some people are frightened by that concept. And it's led to, in my way of thinking, uh, an overinterpretation and an error in interpreting God's word. The, the, the thought goes like this. If you can prove to me that one part of the Bible is not true, I cannot believe it. Therefore, I can't believe any of it. And that, that's a common evangelical point of view. It must all be totally true, or it's unbelievable. Let me give you another model. It's not all understandable. Otherwise, you'd know what Sila, Mictram, Gitaf, and things meant. It's not all understandable. But the things that God has made clear are pretty clear. Salvation by faith is clear. It's no less clear because I don't understand the meaning of the word Sila. But God is saying to me, here, salvation by faith, the deity of Christ, repentance, the things that really matter, they are clear. But when you understand them, 
try and understand them with a bit of humility because you might not understand why they are like they are. We might not understand all the details, but we can believe what God has made clear. So the things he's made clear, hold on to. The things he's not made clear, don't be challenged by. Don't be upset by. Don't fall out with other Christians, as Paul says, over parts of the scriptures which can be debated, which are doubtful. Have your own view, by all means. But don't fall out over things that aren't important and things that are peripheral. Believe the solid things. And here's the example. In the Psalms, at the start of the Psalms are all these wonderful words that you don't know not what they mean. But God put them there. And I love that. So, God put some things in the Bible you cannot understand. Think about that. God meant to do it. It's not an accident. It's there to teach you something. It's to teach you you can't understand. Some of the things that are there do, in fact, though, bring some meaning. Like the start of Psalm 3. What does it say? Can you read me the, the heading for the start of Psalm 3? When he fled from his son Absalom. So what's that telling you? It's telling you when the psalm was written. It's telling you what was happening when the psalm was written. In other words, it's telling you the context. So it's actually saying context is important. Some psalms, it doesn't tell you the context. So it's saying, sometimes context is not important. Oh, isn't that obvious? Yes, but it makes such a difference when we come to interpret the scriptures. To understand that context can be important. So there is teaching in, in the, these headings. It's telling you about the importance of context. And it brings me to a thought about the Psalms. I think there's three lines that I take with every Psalm I read. Um, or we, we, it doesn't work for all of them, but it helps. The first one is, what is the historical context of this Psalm or Old Testament? The second one, like Psalm 22, is what is the prophetic side of this? What is it telling me about Christ in the future? And the third one is very obvious. What does it say to me? What does it say to me? Don't be frightened in taking those three things in. They can be three different things. But the heading of these psalms shows us some things are in context, some things aren't in context. The, the, the word of God is wonderful. It can be that broad and it can be that um, narrow. Lastly, I'm going to bring you another thought. You can have your own thoughts on why these things are here. But these are just three thoughts that I've got. So the first one is you can't understand everything. The second one is it does teach you some things. It teaches you about context. And the third one is I like this. Um, some of these words, Selah, Miktam, and others, uh, they are musical terms. I think we can accept they're musical terms. Or musical and liturgical or poetic terms, or terms about reading and to help you read them and things like that. What does that say? Well, I don't know what they mean, but they're there. That means to me that music is in the scripture. Scripture contains music. We, we can't play it, we don't know what it means, but it's there. That, that is really encouraging to me. Because 
uh, it's God is talking about his heart, his heart of worship. And you look back at David's time and you find they had structured choirs, they had structured instruments, they had people who were set aside for the playing of music. Now, don't take that as just being music. Open that up broader and ask yourself what God is saying. Exodus 28, verse 2. Somebody read in Exodus 28, verse 2. Who's, who's got... Uh, that's a wond- wonderful, again, a verse that you can meditate on for ages. Exodus 28, verse 2. To give him dignity and honor. Another translation? It says, glory and beauty in some. To give him dignity, to give him honor, to give him glory, to give him beauty. Use different translations, but I love this idea of beauty. It was to give him beauty. And we find that God is a God of beauty. And if you look into the, this, the, this part of, of the, the Old Testament where the, the ark is being constructed, there's a wonderful thought that God, the giving of God's spirit was also given for skills. We like to think that when someone says it's spirit-led, it's intellectual. It's what you say or what you speak. But there's more to it than that. Let's read the next verse, Exodus 28.3. Somebody read that. So the wisdom here was the skill of making the garments. And it's a spirit given skill. So, needlework is seen as a God-given skill to bring beauty to God's servants. Now, just take that thought away and think about it, because it's fantastic, it's wonderful. It means the Holy Spirit anoints what you do as much as what you say or think or lead. You can be in the kitchen preparing the biscuits for the start of the service and that is, can be as Holy Spirit anointed as the person who's leading the worship. There it is in Exodus. And scattered through the Psalms when it uses these words mitram, gitaf and things like that, it's talking about the musical gifts to the choir master. A lot of the Psalms start off to the choir master. That's all it says. So who was the choir master? He was in charge of the worship. And here is the service being addressed to the choir master. And sometimes it says a psalm of David. So it's telling you what it is. God's spirit anoints what you do as much as what you say or who you are. And it means that spiritual gifting is for all of us. No matter what your gifting is, don't be jealous of someone else's gifting. Find your own gifting. But here it is in needlework. But it's more than that. It's the creation of beauty. And I love this thought that God is a God of beauty. 
He's a God of inspiration and a God of beauty. And what these, these phrases that come up in the Psalms say to me every time I read one, I see one, is God saying, that is structured, that is thought through, that is planned, that is, I want it like this. This is the creation of beauty. It's the creation of coming together, human beings coming together to worship God as one in a structured, organized musical phrase. And with Aaron dressed in beautiful garments to bring glory to God. And everybody's part is as important as the other person's part. The person who made the garments for Aaron is as important as the person, as the high priest who stood at the front and offered the, the service. We all have different roles, but it's all spirit-led. But let's just, beauty is important. Let's read, someone reads me 1 Peter 3 verse 4. John, can you do that for me? 1 Peter 3 verse 4. So beauty is also internal. It's also how we are. So let's not get trapped into thinking beautiful, i.e. modern concepts of beauty. It doesn't say that. It's not about the concept, like modern concepts of beauty. It's not about an anointed order that was pleasing and satisfying that God brought into the service and, and, and the worship in his service in the dress of the priests, and I guess we could say today, in the way our churches look, the way that maybe even we look, but the important one is the internal beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which within God's sight is very precious. So, what do I learn from these parts of the Psalms? The first one, I can't believe everything. I can't understand everything. Some things I have to accept. God knows, and I don't. That makes me a place for humility. Secondly, there are, there, it does teach me something. Contextual teaching is, is important. Thirdly, I look at these words, selah, miktam, gitath, and I go back into the Old Testament, I can see that God anoints not just words. He anoints actions. He anoints gifts. He anoints who we are. He anoints needlework. He anoints the making of the garment. It's, there's a lot about the goldsmiths and the silversmiths and the people that mix the perfumes, that mix the, the, the incense that was burnt, all in, in, in Exodus, about how this is a God-given gift. If your job and your, your calling here is to, to serve the biscuits and the cakes at the start of the service, that's as a God-anointed and as important as um, whatever else happens in the service. So, to me, what does it mean? It's not an accident. These, these points are there deliberately for our understanding. This is just what leads me as a meditation. To help me understand how I should approach the Bible, because I accept I can't understand all of it. It helps me understand there's a point to God's desire for worship and music, that God is a God of structure, of skill and order and beauty, that all skill when submitted to God can be anointed, just as much as preaching or teaching, that harmony comes with mutuality and cooperation. A miktam to the dough of the morning, it's, it's telling you to do it in a certain way. 
It, it's harmonious. And to me, the more I look at the Bible, the more I read it, the more wonderful and beautiful it becomes. Let's just close the prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its beauty. We thank you for its understanding. We thank you for the way it leads us and teaches us. We thank you, Lord, that it's not divisive and causing violence or war, as some would point up, try and make it, but it brings us to a point of beauty, of harmony, of oneness, of submission to you, to allow your spirit to work and move amongst us. And it points us to the resurrected Son of God, who came that we might know you and build a relationship with you, both in this life and eternally. Amen.